Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special audio session by ThePilotReport.com. I'm your host, Len Costa. Today's bonus audio is with a very special aviator. His name is Mark Jones Jr., and he blogs over at MultiplyLeadership.com. Thanks for stopping by today, Mark. Thanks for having me, Len. Now, I was real interested when I first met you on Twitter, actually, because I was reading a little bit about your background and your bio, and and it mentions that you're a test pilot. So, uh, you know, I wanted to have you on the call today and kind of learn about, um, you know, what it's like being a test pilot. Maybe you've got a, I'm sure you've got a few interesting stories you could share with us. Um, So why don't we go ahead and start in, basically, how'd you get involved in aviation? Okay, I was, uh, my dad was a pilot when I was growing up, and he was also in in the Air Force, and I pretty much wanted to follow in his footsteps Pretty much all of my life. So uh, I uh, went to the Air Force Academy, went to pilot training, and it's uh, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> awesome. So how long have you been in the Air Force? I started at the Air Force Academy in 1994. I got my commission in 1999, and I've been flying planes for the Air Force since 2001. Awesome. Now, how does I mean, how does one make a transition from flight training into a test pilot type of position? Honestly, it starts very, very early in someone's uh, life and training. Um, okay. One of the one of the first milestones that anybody who wants to be a test pilot usually has to has to pass is what they study in college, because uh, for the Air Force training, at least, you have to have a degree in engineering or mathematics in order to even apply for test pilot school. Okay. Um, so I, I, I knew that as an undergraduate. Uh, I had planned to be a test pilot pretty much all my life. And okay. so I knew that, and I already loved mathematics anyway, so I took math as an undergrad. Um, the rest of it is just pretty much do well at your job. You know, don't crash the airplane. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything stupid, break any rules. And uh, after you get a certain number of hours, and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, though, but after basically as you – after you're, you upgrade to the left seat, aircraft commander is what we call it in the military. It's captain, okay. you know, for mm-hmm. commercial types. Um, after you upgrade to the left seat, then then you're basically eligible to apply to the, te- the test pilot school. And they're looking for – you know, they prefer people with a, with a wide background. Mm-hmm. But uh, fundamentally, it's people who are engineers and pilots at the same time because a test pilot really is someone who speaks the engine nerding language, but they mm-hmm. also speak pilot. And so they can come to the table and explain things to guys on both sides of the table and help design airplanes so that pilots can fly them easily. Okay. So, um, so is this something that you now do full time or is this because you've been in the Air Force, it's something that you do, you know, an occasional type of activity? No, right now I am a, a full-time test pilot for the okay. Air Force. Um, I went through the uh, test pilot schoolhouse out here at Edwards Air Force Base in 2007. And during the schoolhouse, we fly over 30 different kinds of airplanes, which is probably the most fun that's legally possible. And <laughs> um, <clears throat> was probably the one of the most rewarding years of my of my career in the Air Force. But mm-hmm. uh, so after this, after the schoolhouse was over, I got um, assigned to the uh, multi-engine global reach command test force. We test C-17s, KC-135s, KC-10s, C-5s, all the tanker and cargo airplanes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been testing primarily C-17s since then. Uh, I've been on a couple other projects uh, that haven't resulted in us having airplanes. Like I was assigned to the uh, the KCX project, which is you know pretty high profile in the news right now. They're, they've awarded the contract, and we're still waiting for all the 
um, all the paperwork to get done on that before we ever mm-hmm. see an airplane and can start testing it. But I was also assigned to the X-55, which was a special project the Air Force did uh, where they took a Dornier 328, they cut off, they took off the wings and they cut off the nose, and then they rebuilt the rest of the airplane with composite. Um, and I was going to fly that until something got bent in the initial stages of testing there. So I've, mm-hmm. I've been on a couple really cool cutting-edge projects, but for the most part, I just do, do developmental tests on the C-17. Now, the C-17 is actually, I don't, I don't think many people know this about me personally, but I, it's one of my, uh, it's one of my favorite looking airplanes. Somebody actually teased me about it saying, well, why do you like, you know, it's a big squatty airplane. It's, it's like when you see a C-17 on the ramp, you know it's a C-17. It's beefy, it's sexy, and it's just out there and it's proud looking. And I think that's pretty cool that you get the opportunity to fly that all the time. Well, it's, it, it is big, um, but it flies kind of like a, uh, like a sports car drives, honestly. Okay. Really? Yeah. It's quite the performance. It is. Now, have you, um, in, I guess, uh, doing the, the, the test pilot activities, is that primarily there out of Edwards and, you know, over the U.S., or do you have you flown internationally for other missions and stuff like that in the past? Um, prior to going through test pilot school, you know, I flew all over the world um, in the C-17, although I tell everybody that the world looks the same from the runway. <laughs> Um, it's, it's busy enough that we didn't get to see a lot, but, uh, doing tests for the C-17, most of them are done here in California, but, uh, whenever we do an upgrade to like the navigation system, we usually end up flying over the North Pole and over the equator and the international dateline just to make sure that the computers don't go kaput when you, when you cross that line. Mm -hmm. So we do get out a little bit. Okay. Now, um, when you when you actually, I guess this brings me to a new question. When you say testing C-17s, is this is this like something that every aircraft that comes off the assembly line is tested, and that's what you're doing, or is this different variations that they're producing for or working on for you know mass production? It's basically upgrades to the aircraft. Okay. That's primarily what we do. You know, pieces of equipment go out of. <clears throat> um, stop working, so they replace them with new pieces of equipment. You know. The, the national airspace system and the international airspace system are continually developing requirements for what kind of equipment you have to have to fly in their airspace, and so right. we have to upgrade the C-17 for that. Um, you know, the, the bad guys are getting smarter, so we're developing new defensive systems. But also, uh, one of the things that we get to do that's probably the most exciting is whenever someone needs to do something with the C-17 that it wasn't designed to do, we get to do it, and the, I think my uh, the most exciting example is uh, NASA is currently developing the Constellation program, which you know has under, undergone severe budget cuts. But they are developing the Orion space capsule and the Ares rocket to replace the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And as part of their development in that, they had to test the recovery parachutes for both the Orion, which is kind of like the Apollo capsule, just bigger and better. Okay. And test the recovery parachutes for the Ares uh, rocket booster. The Ares is a lot like the solid rocket boosters that are currently in use on the shuttle program, um, but a little bit bigger and better. But they needed to to test the recovery parachutes, uh, and the way they decided to do that was to drop these things out the back of a C-17. And so just over a year ago, we dropped 72,000 pounds of solid rocket booster out of the (laughs) C-17. Wow. It's parachutes deployed. I think... It has three parachutes, and they're a million dollars a piece for these parachutes Holy for a bunch smokes. of nylon. And, um, that was really exciting. Uh, for the, the Orion, about two years ago, 
we dropped that out of the back and it almost looked like something out of uh, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner because the parachutes didn't quite work the way they planned and it mm-hmm. ended up making a smoking hole in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and if you search for Orion parachute test on, on YouTube, you'll see a good video of that. Okay, I'll check that out. Awesome. Um, so you said, you know, your background started with mathematics. Now, you went, uh, you went to university to college for a mathematics degree? That's, yep, that's what I studied in college. Okay, what did you do after college um, before getting into the Air Force and working as a test pilot? Uh, I basically went straight into the Air Force. The okay. Air Force uh, sent me to get my master's degree in math, and then as soon as I was done with my master's degree, I started pilot training. Awesome. Now, in flying, what you said was around 30-some-odd aircraft in uh, initial pilot training. What was uh, – give us an idea of what was your most favorite airplane and maybe what, which was your least favorite. Um, okay. Well, I've, I'm, the curriculum aircraft, There's the three major ones are the F-16, mm-hmm. the uh, C-12, which is a King Air 200. Okay. And the uh, – and the third one is the T-38. Those are the three primary curriculum aircraft. We fly those every week, but during the rest of the course, uh, we get to fly a lot of things. From the, the Grumman Albatross, an amphibious plane, we've flown mm-hmm. that. We got to fly the MiG-15. We get to fly uh, a bunch of civilian planes like the Learjet, um, the T-6 SNJ, a tail dragger. Um, so a wide range of aircraft. I got to fly a couple helicopters, and that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, something I recommend every fixed-wing pilot should do at least once in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the most fun I had in any airplane in test pilot school was in the A-10 Warthog. Okay. Uh, the A-10, as you know, is a single-seat airplane, and there are no multi-seat A-10s in the entire Air Force. Right. So the very first time I flew the A-10, I was all by myself. <laughs> and that was... Uh, just a exhilarating feeling. We went through uh, about a week of training. There was a couple of days of ground school, a couple of days of simulators. And then when you do go fly, uh, you're flying with a wingman. So it's a formation of two A-10s and mm-hmm. an instructor pilots in the other airplane. But while you're flying, they let you shoot the gun and drop bombs. And that was just <laughs> that was awesome. the most fun I had. Awesome. So, you know, you flew the A-10 for the first time, basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, you are solo up there. But, yep. you know, with the training that they provided you, the week, week and a half's worth of training, were you were you a, new, a newer pilot at this time or had you some experience that, you know, you've still felt comfortable moving into a new aircraft by yourself after a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, awareness and differences training? At, at this point in the uh, test pilot school training, I had uh, the the test pilot school. This was this A ten flight came at the end of the year, mm-hmm. the end of the year of training, and so we basically gone through the entire test pilot curriculum. Okay, and this was kind of the capstone project. So I, I felt very prepared, and this and I didn't start test pilot school until I'd been flying in the Air Force for about seven years. So um, at about almost two thousand hours by the time I flew the A ten. And had already gone through the year of training, so I mean, I I felt totally prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something a little bit uh, scary about you know it all, the entire burden of responsibility resting on your shoulders because very few of us get to fly an airplane by ourselves for the first time. But mm-hmm. but I definitely mentally felt prepared. Awesome, yeah. It's we had a similar experience as, as an airline pilot. I mean, you go through flight training. Uh, you've got uh, we had in particular, 
it was a two-month process, roughly a month of ground school and about three weeks of flight sim training before you have a check ride. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, just because you're in a full motion simulator, that's fine and dandy. You feel what's going on in the airplane. But the first time for me flying the airplane now mind you there's obviously two of us on board and and at this point one of them is a is a czech airman so they're a little bit higher qualified but the very first time i flew the airplane the jet that i'm flying for work is uh you know you get on you do your thing you look back there's 50 people behind you and i'm thinking (laughs) to myself i have never been in this airplane i've gone in the simulator and flown around on you know these different approaches on an lcd screen in a non-jeopardy situation but the very first time you're out there by your well you know again with a training captain it's uh it's in the real airplane and it was um it was exciting you know because you're like wow i'm i've got all these lives behind me depending on me and you know at the time i had over i don't know 11 or 1200 hours as a pilot so i wasn't nervous as the flying aspect but being a new airplane my first jet my first swept wing aircraft i was you know it's like this is all new to me and the, the level of excitement and even even today you're still flying around and it's such an enjoyable experience being in a jet yep i i, I agree in c17 initial training which i did in uh, the 2003 time frame it's basically the same the first you know couple months it's it's uh, you know ground training and simulators, and uh, we actually get one training flight, and then the very next flight is a is a check ride. So we get uh, and there's no passengers on that, so a little bit less less uh, <laughs> less performance anxiety, I guess, for me. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, so you know when we were uh, when we were talking offline, I had mentioned I I had looked at various jobs out there in the industry. There's there's a couple of jobs offered through the FAA for positions similar to what you do, test pilot. And I got curious at a time. I was like, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, I could I could see myself being a test pilot. And I got into looking around online to see essentially what um you know what it costs and i'm looking and i find this school out in california and for a civilian it's it's a couple hundred thousand dollars to go through yep. a, you know a test pilot school yep it is um the national test pilot school is the school you're speaking of and it's mm-hmm. up, it's in uh, the town of mojave which is just up the road from here and it is probably a half a million dollars uh, to go through the for the year-long course <clears throat> um I know several test pilots who work for companies like Cessna and uh, you know Boeing and big production companies like that, who have kind of taken a more non-traditional route to get their uh, test pilot experience. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> some of them don't have any of that formal training, um, and some of them have you know did production flight tests for years. Where, like at, at the Cessna factory, planes come off the line and they have to go through you know an hour long, hour and a half long rigorous. Right. Flight check of all the systems and that kind of stuff. So they do that for a thousand hours and get their experience doing that. And then they kind of move across the street to what they call engineering flight test. And they're the ones who are, you know, going out and flying the prototype airplanes, the Skycatcher, when it was in development. The, the chief pilot for that was, uh, had basically just climbed his way up the ladder by, you know, flying thousands of hours in, mm-hmm. in production flight tests. Um, do you find that? In your type of industry, as far as test piloting goes, it's more common to have somebody go through the military process versus uh, paying out of pocket, you know, at this, this school in California? 
Uh, yeah, I do think that is very common. I think uh, the school in California, a large portion of the people who go there either have some kind of cor- corporate sponsorship like you know Boeing or some big right. company like that, or they're uh, international students coming from countries that don't have their own test pilot school. Okay. A bunch of our allies in Asia send their students over to the to the National Test Pilot School here. Okay. Yeah, because so, you know, that uh, I guess that dream of mine was uh, severely shattered by the, the, you know, the mere expense of the school. But, um, you know, definitely cool. And I think and again, that kind of brings me to why I've got you on today on the call with me today, because it's something that's always interested me. And and it's such a cool area that uh, we don't often get to hear about or see very much about unless, you know, with a with a large Boeing engineering test flights that are publicized you know nobody yep. really kind of knows what goes on in the background and how, and, exactly. and what it takes to get there and and what the what what's all entailed so um that's very cool now um all right so your favorite airplane was the a10 how about uh maybe one of your least favorite airplanes let me think about that i don't know i think for most pilots we like just to like to fly anytime and right. so you know, <laughs> you know a, a bad day in the cockpit is better than a good day on the ground that's true um and I don't know. I, I'll tell you, one of the most challenging airplanes to fly sure. was the F-16. It's, you know, the the uh, control stick in the F-16 only moves about a quarter of an inch in any direction. Okay. And, but it senses how hard you push it. And for a, uh, you know, for the having flown C-17s all my life, the the control stick pressures, how much force you put on the control stick in a C-17 is a lot more than what you need in an F-16. So I always found it very hard to fly the F-16 well. Um, that was probably the most challenging. Least favorite? Well, you know what? Honestly, the uh, the MiG-15, <clears throat> which was really fun to fly just because it's a cool historical airplane, um, the way that they do the nose wheel steering, mm-hmm. you basically have a uh, – there's a rod on a pivot in, in the floor, and in order to get any nose wheel steering to the right, you have to push the, the basically the pedal all the way to the floor, and then – you you have a handbrake on the control stick that's kind of like the handbrake on your bicycle. Okay. And when you squeeze the handbrake, you know it engages the the brake on the right wheel. And so then you so you basically make turns in the MiG-15 by, you know, tapping the brake, release the brake, tap the brake, release the brake. So very difficult to control. Okay. Uh, well, and I found that to be a very interesting design. And the other thing about the MiG-15 that most people don't know is that the the attitude indicator. You know, whereas we're used to the sky being blue and the ground being dirt, in the MiG-15, the sky is brown and the ground is blue. <laughs> that that could pose some real confusion after a day, you know, a long day of flying. You get in this thing and you're like, uh, that. You know what that means to me? It was meant to be flown upside down, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. A little challenging though when you're trying to drop the bombs upside down. <laughs> Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, um, that's cool. Tell me, um, do you uh, do you do any civilian flying or any GA flying? Not as much as I want. Um, I do have my multi-engine instructor and uh, single-engine uh, ratings and a type rating in the Beach Jet 400, but uh, I don't get to do that nearly as much as I want. But uh, hopefully, I will in the very near future. Actually. Okay. Um, you'd like to get back into instructing as well or maybe just more ga flying in general um probably both Mm -hmm. um i'm actually getting ready to uh a couple months here i'll be 
uh, going to school to learn how to fly the T-6 Texan II. Okay. Uh, which is the Air Force's primary trainer. It's a uh, single-engine turboprop, you know, with tandem seating. And, uh, you know, guys walk in off the streets, get their commission, and then they, they we stick them in this, this uh, turboprop trainer to learn how to fly an airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun to fly because you get to fly in very close formation. You get to do a lot of acrobatics. But you also get to see a guy who doesn't even know, you know, which direction is up in an airplane progress from knowing nothing to... To being very experienced, uh, very experienced single-engine pilot, and so I'm getting ready to do that. And once I do that, I plan to do uh, to do a lot more flight instruction uh, in general aviation aircraft, and maybe even some acrobatic instruction. Oh, awesome! Um, oh, acrobatic instruction, very cool. What do you you might well you must have a lot of experience doing aerobatics and, and all kinds of sorts of things, uh, especially in test pilot school with the F-16 and all those other aircraft. Um, is that part of a curriculum that you know some sort of aerobatic maneuvers it is it's part of the uh the very basic pilot training curriculum that we go through um and it's also very much a part of the test pilot school curriculum Mm -hmm. uh, because we basically have to take you know those airplanes that are getting tested through the entire flight envelope right um which includes doing split S's at you know Mach 1.1 sometimes. Wow, <laughs> what's that like? <laughs> it's it's a uh, at uh, when you're going faster than the speed of sound, the world seems to go by at about the same pace that it does if you're going Mach 0.6. Okay, <laughs> honestly, I mean you're up so high that and everything looks so small that you can't even barely tell the difference. No kidding. Is that a, so? You know, split S's. Does that require a lot of altitude and maneuvering room when you're going at such speeds like that? Absolutely, yeah, it sure does. Um, and in one of the maneuvers that we do, where we we start the split S supersonic, we actually, you know, pull until the nose is about 45 degrees nose low, and then we stop the split S, and just do uh, an aileron roll to pull upright because because a a true supersonic split S would take, you know, 30,000 feet to to do safely wow that's incredible um so tell uh, i guess i got another question for you then regarding um you know as you mentioned you flying these aircraft through their entire the entire envelope range uh do do you come to some areas does it get uncomfortable at certain points when you're really pushing the limit on a, on a particular aircraft yes and no um Certainly, there's always a little bit of anxiety when you when you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But the thing about being test pilots, um, I would say that four or five times as much work goes into preparing for a test flight than does any you know normal uh, civilian mm-hmm. commercial general general aviation flight. We plan for months, and we you know script out exactly the steps that we're going to take to accomplish a maneuver and we script out exactly what we're going to do if this emergency or that emergency happens um so when you when you get out to that edge of the envelope you and also the other thing is is you have so much engineering back you know engineering mm-hmm. analysis and simulation done that we fully expect the airplane to respond the way that it's been predicted to expect and if it doesn't we know exactly what we're going to do and so it's almost like, you know, instinct takes over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there is always maybe just a little, a tiny, small bit of anxiety of, you know, what will happen if this doesn't work 
mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't work like, you know, we prepared for the emergencies. Right. Uh, speaking of emergencies, what uh, what kind of emergencies have you experienced before? Um, in flight tests, not not very many. Um, let me think here. I think the biggest things that ever happened are probably extremely mundane. Mm-hmm. I did get a chance to do the uh, first four-engine flight on biofuels in the C-17. Oh, very cool. And so we sat down and said to ourselves, okay, well, what happens if all the engines fail because of this biofuel? And we had a plan for how far we could glide and how high we needed to be to make it back to the runway and what checklists we were going to run and all that stuff. And, you know, with when we go do a test flight, we have a crew of sometimes of as many as 10 people, different engineers looking at different displays and, and people taking the notes and obviously the co-pilot and the loadmaster as well. Uh, so before I went and flew, that was probably the, you know, the biggest uh, challenge that I saw as an emergency that could happen. But we went and flew and the thing worked perfectly and it ended up being a non-event. Speaking of biofuel, you guys, um, you st- it's been a, as far as I've read, it's been something that's kind of been tested for at least, well, maybe about the last couple of years they've been working on it. What, uh-huh. what can you tell us a little bit about this biofuel and it's how expensive. it works? Okay. It's very, very expensive to make. Um, I think the biggest challenge to the aviation industry is, is bringing the cost of that stuff down and, and maybe, you know, technology or, or manufacturing processes will evolve in the, in the coming years to, bring the cost of it down for now i think basically we're just in the very early stages of the research and development of the biofuels and we proved that it basically works the same as the other stuff right um but really seeing it in widespread use is probably 10 years away mm, okay uh, what's the scariest event you've ever experienced in you know any aircraft um i don't know let me think um you know, honestly, it was probably when I was a brand new private pilot or okay. a student pilot even. And, <laughs> you know, going cross country and the clouds are coming down, you're like, ah, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> yeah. What I, uh, I, what aircraft were you flying at that time? Cessna 152 is what okay. I did my, you know, private pilot training in. Okay. Um, I guess the other times that I've been scared is when... Uh, sometimes when we do training or sometimes when we flew combat missions in the C-17, we would take... Uh, three or four pilots, and when you uh, oh, he, you know what? Here's the scariest I've ever been. It just dawned on me. So I had All a crew. Right. I was the aircraft commander, and I had uh, an experienced co-pilot and then a new co-pilot flying with me, and we were flying into and out of Iraq, uh, down to uh, a country there in the Persian Gulf, um, and it had been a long day. We had been probably working for 18 hours we would Mm -hmm. take real short flights and then spend a lot of time on the ground for them to offload cargo and then onload cargo and so it wasn't a lot of flying time but it was a very long day well we finally get to a safe altitude in iraq and i said guys i i have got to take a nap so you two fly while i go hop in the bunk in the back and uh, i did that i woke up about 20 minutes later and climbed out of the bunk and, and saw something that I found curious. I'm like, hmm, that shouldn't be like that. So I walked up to the, the flight deck to see what was going on and put my headset on and asked the guys what's going on. And as I'm doing all this, I look at them in the in the pilot and co-pilot seat and see both of them with their head backs and, you know, their head back and their mouth open. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's the last time I ever get out of the seat on this trip. 
<laughs> they were just messing with you. <laughs> well, I think I think they were tired. I don't know if they had been sleeping long, but uh... yeah. Well, you know that's an interesting an interesting example. Working an eighteen hour day. Uh, do you guys have any sort of flight and or duty limitations like we do commercially or you know in civilian flying? Yeah, we do. Um, before we even go fly at all during a work day, we have to have uh, basically twelve hours of uninterrupted what we call crew rest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to be away from work for twelve hours, and you have to have the opportunity for eight hours of uninterrupted rest, and then uh, you can work up to uh, sixteen hours with just two pilots and a loadmaster. So you can okay. have a sixteen-hour flying duty day. Um, if you have a third pilot added to your crew you can uh, work up to 24 hours that way one pilot has an opportunity to get some rest in the in the crew bunk that's on the c-17 and you can split the duties evenly that way awesome so you've done sounds like you've done a little bit of long haul flying in the c-17 what's possibly the longest flight you've ever flown um that's interesting question because uh someone asked me that just the other day the longest flight i've ever flown it was a two-leg hop. I once took off out of Sydney, landed at Hickam in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and as we landed, they asked us if we could do a medevac of an infant with a heart problem to Detroit. And so we quick refueled and uh, loaded this little infant in the back there and flew all the way to Detroit. By the end of the day, we had been you know, flying for probably 20 hours total with that three-hour layover in the middle mm-hmm. but it ended up being about a 25-hour day so wow i think that's almost halfway around the world we, we go a little bit slower than the than the uh, airliners do so maybe it took us a little bit longer but okay uh so yes yeah, so we were talking about the longest flights what what kind of range in general can an example again the c-17 you went you said from sydney to hawaii and then fueled up before going to detroit what uh, what range do you get and at what speed? Uh, we we cruised uh, typically around Mach 0.74. Okay. Um, we can we can circumnavigate the globe if we have to because the C-17 is is capable of aerial refueling. Okay. Um, I have flown from you know Germany all the way to the east coast of California and that required a a refueling. Um, it gives us a little flexibility because we can haul more cargo that way and right. exchange some of that fuel weight for cargo. Um, but if if we had to, we could circumnavigate the globe just by doing air refueling from point to point. Speaking of aerial refueling, that uh, sounds like an interesting way of uh, uploading fuel. What's uh, What was it like your first time in an aerial refueling situation? That, that was probably one of the scariest times in the airplane. Too. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, two half million pound airplanes, you know, within within 10 feet of each other. And uh, uh-huh. it's all you can do not to be white knuckled on the on the control stick and the throttles. Once you uh, once you figure out what you're doing, it's very easy to relax and very precisely control the airplane. I mean, mm-hmm. the good thing about big airplanes is that once you get them where they want to be, it takes a lot to move them out of where they should be. True. So once you find that sweet spot, you can pretty much just stay there. But uh I mean, I, it's a fantastic capability for the military to have that. It's it's probably one of the most fun things to do in the C-17 because it is so challenging. And when you do it well, you feel, you know, there's a, a, a very big feeling of accomplishment after doing it. Mm-hmm. 
what kind of coordination goes into yourself and the lead aircraft, uh, you know, before you even get the, the, the boom out and all that good stuff? What, what do you, what do you do? How does that work out? Um, there's, there are volumes and volumes of basically standardized procedures to, to kind of simplify the, the coordination that's required on the day of flight. But, uh, the tanker aircraft have a certain, uh, orbit that they'll set up at a certain point. And there's, mm-hmm. these points are usually pre-coordinated. There's probably a hundred areas in the U S known as air refueling tracks and anchors. And those, and you can look those up in, uh, you know, in some standardized manuals there. And so we navigate to the point to arrive at that point at a certain time. The tanker's navigating to arrive there at a certain time as well. And he's a 1,000 feet above us. And so we basically end up um, intercepting this point. The tanker does a timed turn to roll out about three miles in front of us and 1,000 feet above us. Mm-hmm. As soon as he rolls out there, we, you know, we speed up to catch him. We start to climb up to him. And... The the first kind of uh, a milestone in that process before we actually go get the gas is we stop 50 feet behind the tanker in a stabilized position. Mm-hmm. And um, the tanker's, you know, watching us, the, the boom operator is watching us out the back window to make sure he does that. And there are procedures for, you know, inadvertent overruns and, and emergencies that happen there. But once we get to that stabilized position, then all the boom operator has to do is lower the boom uh, to the fully extended position, which is the visual signal that we're cleared in to come get the gas. Okay. Or, uh, but we do sometimes talk on the radio as well. We have pre-coordinated radio frequencies that we can talk on. So once he extends that boom, we just push in this a tiny bit of power, and we're supposed to advance at one foot per second from that 50-foot spot into the contact position, which can seem like an eternity, but if you try to do it any faster, I mean, you just basically lose con- lose control, and it makes it a lot harder to do. Mm-hmm. You uh, move up to that position, and you're you're looking at the airplane and kind of flying information off of the airplane because you can't see the boom where it's going into you know the position behind and above the flight deck. Okay. But there's also some lights on the bottom of the tanker that that indicate to you uh, your position relative to the airplane and relative to the center of the the refueling envelope. So you've got a lot of those visual cues to fly the airplane up to that position, and you can hear the boom kind of connect with the airplane on the top, and then you know the boomer talks to you while you're getting the gas, and that actually helps you take your mind off of the you know over controlling the airplane and that kind of stuff. What uh, what dangers other than obviously colliding with the aircraft in front of you are inherent in an aerial refueling situation? Uh, I think one of the biggest dangers and one of the reasons why I'm glad they're finally replacing these airplanes, the KC-135, you know, was a originally a Boeing 707. Right. Developed very, very early in in the history of jet airplanes. And the systems on that airplane are certainly not as modernized as one would hope that they, ought, that, that they would be. Um, it has a tendency, uh, if, you, if you move up from that 50-foot position too fast— the tanker autopilot doesn't keep up very well with the trim changes required of the you know the airflow between the two airplanes, the airflow interaction, and sometimes can kick off. And when it does, it does a nosedive. Oh. That's, that's not what you want to see when you're uh, just below an, an aft of an airplane, you know, see it back down in front of you. But I think right. it's a known problem, so most, most pilots can avoid that happening. Um, when you're in training, there's not – 
much uh, stress or things that could go wrong because if you if you can't get the training done, then you can just go home and call it a day. But when you're out there, you know, delivering uh, war fighting supplies or maybe carrying a you know an emergency medevac patient or something like that, and mm-hmm. you really need to get the gas, and maybe the weather's bad and that kind of stuff. All that stuff can kind of contribute to some of the anxiety of doing it. I think the uh, the worst situation I was ever in, we were trying to get gas from a tanker somewhere over the United States, and the weather was bad, and you could actually see St. Elmo's fire, you know, the little tiny right. wings of uh, little fingers of static electricity you know, creeping up over the windows as we were closing to about half a mile behind the tanker. And mm-hmm. we, we stopped and scratched our heads and said, do we really want to do this? Right. You know, what, how, how well does electricity and uh, jet fuel vapor, you know, mix. So we uh, called it a day after that. But And that's, yeah. a, I mean, that's a real risk. You could, uh, if there's sparks or anything up, any ignition source while refueling aloft, I mean, you, you yep. could have a fire or something even more catastrophic. Exactly. Okay, awesome. Uh, so you mentioned... The tanker's on a specific uh, fueling route, and you basically approach the aircraft from behind and below. Yep. So you're pulling up on this uh, specifically, you know, the KC-135. That's a big airplane. You're pulling up on this airplane. Uh, what's uh, what's it like? Is it wake turbulence? Is it bumpy? Is it a rough ride while you're getting in position for that uh, for that boom? Um, not not terribly. Because we approach it from below, I think we, we miss most of the wake turbulence. When you get to about... 80 feet from the airplane, you can feel the 135's wake kind of burbling on the T-tail, the C-17. Oh, okay. Uh, and it just feels like it's a little rumble, a little vibration. Um, but basically, for the most part, we stay well below that wake turbulence. There is a, a really interesting uh, interaction between the two airplanes um, that a lot of new guys at area fueling experience. If you get... Uh, if you're not directly behind the airplane and you start to eke out to the right or to the left, uh, out there on those edges of the envelope, the wake turbulence and the wingtip vortices are actually a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And so if you bump out to the left a little bit farther than you're supposed to, uh, then those wingtip vortices want to push you really hard back, so much so that your airplane will overshoot the center and go back out to the right. And you can end up kind of bouncing between the the left wingtip and the right <laughs> wingtip. Uh-huh. And and uh, stopping that movement is really counterintuitive because if you're out on the right, then that wake that uh, vortex is going to push you back into the center, and all you really want to do is just slow it down. So you actually have to steer to the right, correct, just to kind of slow down that movement so that you can kind of c- center up the position. Right. So if you're uh, if you're new and you get out of position, then the uh, the turbulence is kind of bad. And, but uh, once you get used to it, do it a couple of times, and you could stay there in the center and slightly aft and below, then you, it's it's really not a rough ride at all. Not too bad at all. Interesting. Have you ever had to bail out of any aircraft, whether test pilot or you know other on a mission of any sort? Uh, I never had to. I got the opportunity to jump out of airplanes five times when I was going through college, and okay, to do five freefall jumps and earn my jump wings, uh, and that was man, that was. Probably more exhilarating than flying a plane. I'm, I'll admit that. I mean, you're, you're flying, but with you know no airplanes surrounding you. Yeah. Uh, um, no, but I've, you know we go through all kinds of intense uh, and rigorous training to understand what to do if we have to bail out. Uh, we go through you know classes of how to parachute. We actually do parasailing behind a 
behind a Navy ship. Okay. Uh, you go up to about 200 feet on a parasail, and then they let you go, and you float down into the Gulf of Mexico, and, and you have to, you know, pop out all your survival command and that kind of stuff. That's all part of the, the training mm-hmm. pipeline. Um, and that was all interesting and exciting, uh, but I fortunately have, have never had to bail out. I know a couple people that have. Uh, I know some people that have died when they've tried to do it, which is unfortunate. Um, but I guess I'd thank my lucky stars. I've never had to be in that situation. Yeah, it seems like it's a lot more, uh, how you say, I, I guess a, a risky and dangerous uh, position to have to be in, a bailing out of an aircraft. I, as I read, you know, many things could essentially go wrong. Uh, yep. And it's, I guess it's one thing. Yeah, you're fortunate you haven't had to do that uh, exactly. So, well, very cool. Well, how about um, you know? I'll ask you. Tell me a little bit more about your website, MultiplyLeadership.com. Well, MultiplyLeadership.com is where I blog about where math and flight tests and leadership intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I love to talk about flight tests and flying, and I and I love mathematics. I have ever since I was a kid and since I was an undergraduate. And I think that as we progress into the future in the aeros in the aerospace industry, you know, we're everyone's faced with less money, mm-hmm. less time, yeah, less people, less airplanes, and we need to figure out ways to do things smarter. And there are some. Uh, statistical tools, some mathematic tools that can help us make those decisions smarter, that can really leverage those limited time and resources and money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are illustrated very well in flight tests. But I also think that we as flight testers specifically need to start using those tools more wisely because what happens in flight tests can, can create ripples that affect you know, the rest of the life cycle of an airplane. And we see this right now in the 787. It's taken a lot longer to get the 7-8 out there to the customers because of things that are going wrong in flight test. Mm-hmm. And really what I hope to do with uh, you know, that blog is inform decision makers and leaders about these tools that are available, about how, they can, how these tools will help them save money and help them get uh, you know, the products that the customers want out there uh, on the line, flying, flying sooner than, than they are right now. So do you, are, do you do any outside consulting then? I do a little bit right now, and uh, I'm actually transitioning from full-time Air Force test pilot to a uh, self-employed consultant here in the next okay. uh, several months. Excellent. Um, and, and so I started that blog about a year ago as, as part of that building process. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, I'm doing some consulting for uh, some small uh, aviation-based businesses, um, doing you know analyzing some of their uh, web analytics data, some of their revenue data and marketing data and running some statistical analysis on that to help mm-hmm. them extract the most information they can mm-hmm. uh, to satisfy their customers. Awesome. Well, what kind of, uh, do you have any, any flying advice that you would give to, you know, to the flying community? Something, oh. uh, you know, maybe that you learned uh, the hard way. <laughs> sure. I think, uh, I mean, ask any pilot for advice and I'm sure he's got probably three opinions to yeah, give. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll just give one. Um, uh, I think the thing that I've learned over the years, and I, I've seen this in in good times and in if you don't know envelope, I mean, and that and that applies to even in being in the traffic pattern. 
you know, we see people who end up being uh, too high and too tight on the runway, and they mm. try to overbank their airplane in the traffic pattern. They start pulling back on the yoke and end up stalling their airplane and crashing it into the ground just mm-hmm. because they were in a part of the envelope that they hadn't been in before and didn't right. know how the airplane was going to respond. Um, so understand what your, your the capabilities of your airplane, understand what it's going to do in that part of the envelope, and be able to realize when you're not in the part of the envelope that you thought you were so you can kind of avoid those situations. So, you know, that's interesting because uh, there's been a bit of an emergence maybe even over the last three years with uh, upset training and unusual attitude training. How do you – is this something that, you know, as a pilot, as a, even as a test pilot, an engineer, that you're happy to see a little bit more awareness coming out? Absolutely. Um, I think that all pilots are probably more capable than, than they think they are. Right, I agree. Um, but I do think that having been in that upset situation and in that unusual attitude before in a training environment is, is going to have lots of returns. I think we're going to see in the long run a lot of lives saved by people having gone through that once in a training environment so that mm-hmm. when they actually see it in real life, they're quicker to, to recognize it and then have the, the tools, the skills to recover from that situation. Yeah, and I've started seeing, um, even just uh, about two or three days ago, I came across an article by Avidyne, and they're working on a certification process for their, basically their autopilot system is familiar with the aircraft's envelope and can, from what I gather, essentially get you out of some sort of unusual attitude. And I don't know specifically more detail than that, but uh, they're you know, the industry is moving forward. We've got airplanes with parachutes. Now we're going to have airplanes that get you out of a stupid situation. And, you know, we can all get ourselves there. Anything is possible to happen. You make a mistake and your whole day could be ruined. But with certain training, I think you're right, you know, with upset training in specific, if you have an awareness of how to handle your aircraft or just the aircraft in general. Um, you know, a lot of these tools are nice to have, but I think uh, I think the training itself may be a little more beneficial. Uh, I think I agree with you that the training probably is beneficial because even even these automation systems they tend to fail when we need them most. Right, and that's the biggest thing they teach. I think even probably for you, anytime you've gone through a systems training and there's automation involved, the biggest and most foremost problem with automation is they want us to know, okay, how do you turn it off? Like that's all that matters because when it goes, you know, to poot, you if you can't figure out how to turn that off and recover the airplane, well, you you know, you're in dire straits. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, so and actually, I was just having a discussion earlier this afternoon. Um, a gentleman, uh, one of my friends here in the area, who's also an airline pilot, was talking about a failure uh, he had the just this morning when he was flying on his way back to D.C., where they took off out of the airport and um, he put the autopilot on and he was flipping through his charts and he hears the captain go, "What's what's going on?" And he looks over and the aircraft's in a nice. You know, this is a commercial aviation aircraft. The aircraft's in a nice shallow banking descent. And uh, he looks up and he's like, you know, I turned the autopilot on. And the captain says to him, I know, I saw you do it. So it fails. And when it fails, if you don't notice it or find a way to get, you know, turn it off and recover the airplane, you you, you could let that situation get far out of control. And and there's, I don't even want to bring up any accidents in recent times that have shown us those examples, but it happens time and time again. Yep, you're right. 
interestingly enough, along that same lines, I was talking to some uh, researchers from NASA Ames the other day who specialized in, in the human vehicle interface, and they're, they're trying to do some, uh, some research and some study on how to present information to the pilot uh, that will give him the most information that he needs about the airplane with respect to how the autopilot is, how hard it's yeah. working to do the job, so that when the autopilot kicks off, you know, the pilot will know that he's got a handful of airplane. Um, because of what you said, a lot of those high-profile accidents that we've seen lately, you know, the autopilot's been flying and something's gone wrong with the airplane, maybe a, you know, a slat fell off or something. And so as soon as the autopilot kicks off, the pilot's stuck with an airplane that he's never flown before, and he's now becoming a test pilot, basically. Right. And, and that information's not being presented to him by the, the displays. Uh, so that's, I think that's going to be an area that we see future research in. I think it's going to be an area that we're going to see more people getting trained and heightened awareness in as well. Now, your current exposure to that human interface, uh, is that so far in its infancy in the stage that it's in, is that like a, a readout on a screen or an enunciator? How are they right now uh, testing such an interface? I think they're, uh, both of those are good examples of, of ways that they're testing it. I mean, do we need in, – in some, some airplanes have an oral enunciation uh, that it beeps at a, at a rate. Like if, if you're pitching up at a slow rate, it beeps slowly. If you're pitching up at a really fast rate, it beeps quickly. And so that kind of tells you the rate at which the airplane is moving. Okay. Um, and some, and, but they're also experimenting with like visual displays. Uh, to transmit that kind of information to a pilot. I think we're seeing more and more airplanes with HUDs now, and that's given, I think, some more capability to use those visual displays. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, even the, some of the new business jets, not, I guess some maybe have some HUDs, but more specifically a lot more using uh, like a synthetic vision type of yeah. type of equipment, which uh, which definitely looks neat. What's it, I mean, what, do you guys have heads-up display in the C-17? We do, yeah, the C-17 has a heads-up display, uh, I think the reason that our, our plane has it, uh, one of the the greatest capabilities of the C-17 is that we can land an, an airplane that is literally a half a million pounds, 502,000 pounds, in 3,500 feet of runway and bring it to a stop. <laughs> um, That's outrageous. <laughs> it really is. Uh, but the way we do that is we have a, a flight path vector that shows... Uh, you know, where on the runway basically the airplane is going to impact if we don't pre prevent it from doing that. And it allows us to precisely control our touchdown point and really bleed off a lot of the energy uh, by our rate of touchdown. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we just have an amazing set of brakes on the airplane, too. But right. uh, So that's what we use the HUD for to give us that capability to get into those short runways. Um, do you guys use it for other things like a Cat 2 or Cat 3 ILS approaches? Uh, yeah, we we uh, we are authorized to do Cat two. The Air okay. Force doesn't presently let any of the airplanes do Cat three, um, but we can use it for that. But we're, but we are allowed to fly Cat two approaches without the HUD if it, for some reason it's not working. Right. Yeah. Cat two is definitely something uh, that I obviously you don't get an experience outside of Cat one ILSs unless you're in uh, more advanced flying, like uh, you know, in an airliner situation. And that yeah. was. Uh, 
it was a lot of fun to learn the first time you're doing it in the simulator and everybody's coordinated on who's flying and there's a, we have a, a huge briefing checklist that's involved um, where we brief the entire situation that's going on. There's uh, systems checks. I mean, this starts basically in cruise flight yep. in order to save time because there's just no time to do it in, in the descent phase or the approach phase. It's such a lengthy, a lengthy process. But Cat 2 is a lot of fun. Yeah, as, as you've as you've done them yourself, uh, you, you get down, you know, you think, oh, it's just a hundred feet above the above the runway. It's you know, you, normal is two hundred. I tell you what, you know, as you've experienced yourself, it's a whole different ball game. It's a yeah, whole it different is. experience <laughs> with, at quote unquote, a hundred feet, which is half of what you're used to. And it's usually, yep. it's it's usually the visibility that's more interesting. You land at a place that's socked in, you know, with this low RVR, and you can just about barely taxi off the runway. Yep, exactly. <laughs> you know, and you're like, I don't even know how we got here. This is like, a, it's pure, pure magic, you know, pure flying magic. How do how we got all the way down this approach and on this runway? And uh, heck, we might even need a tug to pull us in because I can't see. Yep, you're so, right. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. And those are some of the things that as an airline pilot and even yourself, a military pilot, some of the things that we get to experience that uh, the, uh, the usual civilian pilot, especially a GA pilot, doesn't get to do all the time. Uh, unless they've got specific certifications, so I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I get to see and experience a lot of things and situations I know I never would have in a GA flying world. Yeah, me too. So um, wonderful. Well, t- why don't we, um, you know, tell the folks, uh, we, like I mentioned, the, your website is multiplyleadership.com. Tell the folks how they could get a hold of you, Twitter, Facebook, any other means that you let, you know, what do you got? Sure. On Twitter, um, Multiply Leaders. On Facebook, um, facebook.com slash Mark Jones Jr. Okay. And if you just remember, if you also, you can find me on the web at markjonesjr.com. So all those places point to all the other places. So if you find one of them, you found them all. Fantastic. Anything you'd like to add uh, before we head out this afternoon? No, Lynn, thanks for having me on uh, the Pilot Report. I really like your website and the tips and and things that you're uh, sharing with everybody there. And I'll certainly be uh, following you as I transition to a slightly different but still aviation-based career. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I appreciate it. And good luck with your endeavor making the transition into consulting. I, you know, as I'm sure it'll be lucrative, uh, especially with the experience you have. So, Well, folks, this has been Mark Jones Jr. of MultiplyLeadership.com today on this special audio session. I'm Len Costa with ThePilotReport.com wishing you guys clear skies and calm winds. Take care, everybody.